0: everyone and welcome back to the Florida Spectacular. I am one of your hosts, Kathy Celestri. It took a little brief hiatus, uh, so I guess this would technically be maybe season two after a hundred and some odd podcasts. And we are joined with uh, my new co-host, who many of you probably know if you're Florida fans, and that would be a uh, writer and uh, sort of the Florida Springs historian, Rick Kilby. Rick, thanks for being here.
1: It's my pleasure. I can't wait to get started.
0: All right. Well, let's jump right in. It's uh, November 16, 2022. And that means there's a holiday just around the corner. Do you have a favorite holiday, Rick?
1: I love Thanksgiving. We have taken it over in my family as the one that we host every year. So it was on Thanksgiving, I guess it's three years ago. Yeah. Three years ago, my brother announced he was expecting a child, which was kind of a shocker because he's over 50. And But it was right here at my house, and so my wife and I, as soon as the hurricanes stop, we start getting working on our house and working on our yard. And we usually have it outside, and we are vegetarians. But we that one time of year, we usually have a turkey and um indulge ourselves in turkey eating
0: the tryptophan, yeah, yes. Well, I love the idea of Thanksgiving, I don't love the history of Thanksgiving if that makes sense. We um. We usually have some, some people over too, at least my parents, my husband's parents. And uh, for various health reasons in my family this year, I don't think that's quite going to happen. But we uh, we don't do it outside. We do, if we have enough people, open up our, our back porch and set up a second table there. But um, I make a Thanksgiving lasagna every year and a capon. So that's uh, a little more Italian, I think, than most people go on Thanksgiving. But.
1: That sounds excellent.
0: Yes. Yes, well the, the, the lasagna is I didn't realize until I was probably in my 20s that most people didn't have lasagna on Thanksgiving. So, <laughs> so
1: Well, so are we going to get into the history in Florida about Thanksgiving?
0: Absolutely we are because I am so sick of these pilgrims hijacking our holiday. <laughs> so, we have uh this 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 greatly upsets people from the northeast, but the first and the second Thanksgiving celebrated in North America. Both took place in Florida. And uh, I know, Rick, you know about all about both of them. But um, I'm fascinated that we, even in our Florida, you know, Florida historian Michael Gannon was uh, the one who really let the world know, hey, the first Thanksgiving was in St. Augustine in the uh, you know, 1560s, and it was Spanish, and there were no pilgrims. Uh, But what I find fascinating about that is it wasn't the first Thanksgiving. The first Thanksgiving was in 1564 with French Huguenots in Jacksonville. Uh, And all I can figure is that ultimately the French did not prevail in Florida and the Spanish did. So the Spanish wrote them out of the Thanksgiving history. And then of course, the uh, Northern Europeans wrote out um, Florida completely from the, from the Thanksgiving story, right?
1: You know you know what I, I was thinking about? Wouldn't it be fun if there was like this alternate history where the French had prevailed in Florida and we would be celebrating French history and we would be eating baguettes and escargot and all that kind of stuff? It would be like St. Augustine was Montreal or something.
0: Ooh, that would be huh. fascinating. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, well, I mean, I'm I'm still thinking that maybe Spain should never have given Florida up because we could have more pork, more black beans and rice or yucca, things like that. But French food, I mean, it's a little heavy, but I'm sure we could have adapted it.
1: That's true. Um, That's very true.
0: But, you know, I'm so bad at French pronunciation. I wouldn't be able to say any of the names of our towns.
1: <laughs> I'm not good at Spanish pronunciation either. <laughs> so
0: can we talk a little bit about the French before we jump into the victorious Spanish conquistadors? Because I really do like the French story.
1: Yeah, I know that they, they had established... So there is debate. As to whether it was in the St. Johns River near the near Jacksonville, where they where Fort Caroline was, the the fort that they ultimately established, some people think it's actually further north in Georgia. But technically, all of that was considered Florida at the time, so you, we could claim it as being in Florida, even if it was actually in Georgia. But I hear that that you know, there was a hot new theory that maybe it was up there, but then people reacted to that and said, no, there's, it really isn't true that it was really in Jacksonville. Cause there is like a Fort Caroline national monument in near Jacksonville.
0: There is. And you have to go down four different Fort Caroline roads to get to it. <laughs> I went there and I, had my GPS with its little brain was going to explode. It's turn left onto Fort Caroline road. And then it would say, turn right onto Fort Caroline way. And, it was just very confusing. I'll never find it again without a map. But, um, you know, it, it's, so that wasn't even the first place the French tried to set up. Um, Rabot, uh, Jean Rabot, came from uh, Havres, France, which I know I'm mispronouncing. And they initially came to Port Royal in South Carolina. Um, and they were going to establish this colony of French Huguenots because the um, this was during, this was not that long, it was 1564, so it was, 70 some odd years after Martin Luther's nailing his 95 thesis on the church. Everybody's all upset about this. The Catholic church is not happy about people not wanting to be Catholic. And so in France, these Huguenots who are not, they don't want to be, they're Protestants, you know, they're French reform. They don't want to be killed. So basically they leave and Revo gets them to Port Royal Sound um, or Paris Island, somewhere in that area. And he's basically, he's like, all right, so I'm going to go back. I'm going to get more food and supplies. I'm going to get more ships. We're going to bring more people over. Y'all keep it together till I get back, which does not sound like a lot to ask, right? (laughs) (laughs) He gets back to France and the French religion wars have been gone. Somehow this guy ends up imprisoned in the Tower of London because he flees to England. So he doesn't get killed. And the British are like, hey, you're a spy. Throw him in the tower. Uh, So King Charles knows he has to do something. So what he does is he takes Rimbaud's first lieutenant, Rene Laudner. He's like, okay, go back over across the ocean. And uh, you, you, you know, you got those guys waiting for you. Bring the ships. Go. And we'll worry about this guy Rimbaud later. So Laudner shows back up and uh, one little thing, keep it together. They hadn't managed to do. Um, They had um, turned to piracy. They basically, it just all fell apart while he was gone. So Law and says, okay, well, we're not going to stay here. And he ends up sailing down to what some historians think was present-day Jacksonville, mouth of the St. John's River. He's like, well, things will be fine here. Um, meanwhile, meanwhile, um, Rabeau gets out of the Tower of London. He gets sent back over, um, and he's supposed to be arriving with even more ships and supplies, but he gets delayed. And by the time he gets back there, I mean, it's just really not a great scene, um, but they they do get it together and they supposedly get together with the locals, which are the Tumakua or Tukmaquin, whatever you want to call that. It was actually a name the Europeans gave them. So we don't know what they called themselves. They didn't write that down. So they get back over, they're having this nice Thanksgiving, super happy. The the Tamak will bring something. They all, I mean, it's basically a much better Thanksgiving. They had squash. They had beans. They also had shrimp and mullet and oyster. I mean, it just sounds like a nicer spread. Um, (laughs) So they're happy. But then, of course, we have a problem. And that's that Spain does not love France showing up. And um, they decide that this will not do. And so they've got um, Menendez de Aviles and they, he lands um, about 10 days after does, just a couple miles down the coast in St. Augustine. And they both, you know, they, that wasn't an accident, right? Like that was by design. to get the French out of our country because now Spain has claimed, like, honestly, most of North America in, in the name of the crown. So um, Menendez gets over, he lands, they celebrate a feast of Thanksgiving. And um, then he sets out for Fort Caroline to get rid of the French. And Rabot, meanwhile, is coming south because he's going to attack Spain, which I think you know you looking back Spain before fifteen eighty eight you don't just go out and attack a Spanish fleet, but this is what this guy was going to do, and uh, the problem is he had been in the Tower of London and didn't really understand Florida weather, so he just thought it was a little storm. He runs into a hurricane, ends up shipwrecked with his men. they think somewhere near Daytona Beach um. Meanwhile, Menendez knows the weather better. He gets up to Fort Caroline. They kill hundreds of the French and um, spare the women and children and a few others because basically the Spanish say, well, are you Catholic? Will you say you're Catholic? And they said, no. Anybody who said no got killed. Um, So René Laudner is still up there. He takes the women and children, hightails it out of there, goes back to Europe. Menendez goes down, finds... Rabot, wherever. Somehow he managed to find him off the coast of Florida. And uh, basically says, says, uh, will you surrender? And Rabot supposedly thought, well, this will go easier on me. And it did not. So that was the end of the French colony. And that's why we have a Spanish Thanksgiving, which I'm sure you can talk more about.
1: That's also why they, we have a Matanzas Inlet and a Fort Matanzas, because Matanzas means massacre.
0: Massacre and, in Spanish.
1: It is interesting how they interpret that history when you go to St. Augustine and places, because, you know, for a long time, people like Menendez were like conquering heroes and you can still find statues of Menendez and St. Augustine as the founder. But if you look at it from this point of view, you know, he, he killed a lot of people, you know, after they surrendered, he, you know,
0: Oh yeah. Cut, him, was, cut their heads off and people. stuff. He's like, well, if I surrender, he'll get mercy. And, and, and then this was like, no, that's not how this works. Oh. My
1: my favorite thing about this story, though, is Jacques Lemoyne, who was a so, you know, they brought over all these people to, you know, um, who knew about animal husbandry and agriculture. They were going to establish New France and including that was artists. So Jacques Lemoyne was an artist and somehow he managed to get back to Spain. I mean, back to France, and he had these watercolors that he painted in Florida. Eventually, supposedly, the watercolors went to a, a guy named Theodore de Bry, who was an engraver. Was he German or I can't No, he's Dutch. And he made these engravings that we still have today, supposedly of the Tumuqua and all these other indigenous people. But he also embellished them quite a bit. So there's things like mountains in the background. But I love that because... You know, it's kind of like telephone tag. It changes a little bit with every generation, but it is kind of a visual record of what it possibly looked like at that time.
0: Well, and it's fascinating, too, because some of them, um, and I believe that Lemoyne went back with Laudner, but some of them were destroyed in the attack. I mean, they, they didn't all make it. So some yeah. of them, when Lemoyne got back, he redid them from memory. And I liken that to... Um, taking a picture of the fish as you pull it out of the water on your fishing pole or just drawing a, drawing it when you get back later. And, you know, it's also some of those drawings were basically for the crown to give them more money. So, you know, that's why that one of them, I think, has like a 50 foot alligator or something. I could just picture them showing the king and saying, look, look at this. Look at what you sent us to do. We need more ships. We need more gold. You've got to send more stuff with us.
1: Yeah, um, I, that makes a lot of sense. I forgot that he had to do them from memory. I know that one of the things they think is accurate is that they showed the indigenous people with tattoos, and we do believe that they they did have tattoos, which is a cool detail.
0: Well, it's it's interesting to look at some of the portrayal, and um, you know, there's some so just some of the things he almost made these people sound or look as though they were almost supernatural like they show there's some if you look at the detail where they show the tamakwin um twisted in ways and their bones moving in ways that just ours never would like with their arms behind them and it's it's a very uh fanciful thing but i love looking at them even though i don't find them to be quite that accurate it's the 50 foot gator that really gets um,
1: <laughs> i love that yeah. one the 50 the foot gator one is super it's- cool
0: is. Um, but, you know, I, I, Dave Scheideker, who is uh, the lead historian down at uh, the Seminole Tribe of Florida, we were talking about this earlier this week. And I asked him, I said, you know, the Ribot Society, because there's a Ribot Society, fascinating website. And they are pretty clear that of all the people that come to North America, the French were the best because the French, unlike the Spanish and unlike the pilgrims and unlike the Puritans who came later. The French were the only ones who didn't come with slaves and the French didn't really want too much other than religious freedom. They didn't really want to take over the whole continent. And so in talking to Dave about the history, I said, is that, is that true? He goes, well, I don't know exactly how true that was. He says, but I will tell you that their oral history, he said that their oral histories that the tribe has, anything they've heard is that the French were the least objectionable. Like if you had to deal with a white person, the French were the best. Yeah, I, 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 you know, the the uh,
1: there are records of when the Spanish started coming over here that there had been people who had escaped from some of the islands of the Caribbean, and that the Spaniards already had a reputation. So that when people like Ponce de Leon got here, they knew they were Spaniards. They knew the reputation, and they, you know, they met with hostile indigenous people because they knew how cruel they could be.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Hernando de Soto was, I mean, he was a shithead. I don't know how else to describe the guy. Um, he apparently, the only way he could control the locals is he told them, he had them convinced somehow he was a god. So then when he when he died, his men were like, well, crap, what do we do now? We've got this body, he's dead. And the Indians, they knew it was going to be bad for them. So rather than give him a funeral or anything, they just dumped his body somewhere in the Mississippi River because they didn't want the Indians to find out he wasn't a god because they were worried about their reaction because Menendez or not Menendez de Soto had been just so horrible um but yeah so the French I could see maybe were better the Spain the Spanish were and the Puritans were not great either I mean jumping ahead to 1621 when we had the first British sanctioned Thanksgiving I guess um you know that's that's not a great retelling either because there's a lot left out of it but you know, it's it's I, I, I like to think the Spanish Thanksgiving is better. I I'm almost in Team France. If we had to pick a first Thanksgiving, I'd go with Team France because it so seems like the least bloody.
1: So your first choice is Team France, second choice would be Team Spain, and then third yes. choice Team England.
0: Yeah, I mean I don't even think England's a choice for me as far as I'm concerned. But yeah. um so so we'll go back to Saint Augustine, but I wanna real quick how did we get from Spanish Thanksgiving, French Thanksgiving to these pilgrims? Some God knows how many decades later, I'm not so great with math, 1621 minus 1564. How did, we, how did we erase all that history? And so I got really interested in this because you know Thanksgiving is um, when the French landed and when the uh, Spanish landed, it was, it was a religious thing. It was a massive Thanksgiving. It was a celebration of giving thanks. It was a, you know, get into the, the meaning of Eucharist, the word Eucharist, which is a Catholic thing. Um, it means basically thanks Thanksgiving. It's, it's a ceremony. So how did we override that and get to the pilgrims? And, um, do you know this? Do you know why?
1: No, I mean, I mean, my, what I've always believed is just because, you know, our history is so Anglo-centric, you know, that, you know, they were, you know, it's new England and the 13 original colonies are all settled by the English for the most part. And the, you know, we view the our history through that lens and that, you know, F- Florida for all intents and purposes, even though there were people here and there was a settlement here, you know, that history was overlooked for a long time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I always thought that was a lot of it. And I think a lot of it was, you know, history gets written by the winners. And yeah. um, when the so-called 13 original colonies, uh, which there were more than 13, um, mm-hmm. when they said, well, you yeah, know, Screw you, King George! East and West Florida was like, no, you know what? We're not, we're not into this. That's insurrection. We're going to hang out with the crown. And I feel like we've just been punished for the past three hundred. I mean, basically, there's never been a war Florida's been involved in that's worked out well for them. Which brings (laughs) me to what I think is how it became official that the Pilgrims had the so-called first Thanksgiving, and that was because in 1863, Abraham Lincoln, and he's dealing with a very He's got a civil war. Everybody's divided. It's horrible. Um, He's not polling great. Fox News hates this guy. Um, And and, uh, he's like, well, what am I going to do to unite the country? So he says, well, I'm going to make Thanksgiving a national holiday. And I think part of why they might have selected Plymouth was because in 1863, if we had picked either of the first two real Thanksgivings, it would be abraham lincoln saying let's have our official annual holiday in um in a state that has seceded from the union like i just can't see that being something he would he would want to do you know it, it just doesn't seem right um like like he's like ah cuz he was trying to pitch this idea of the pilgrims and the indians coming together as the north and south will be reunited again But it was just basically bad optics. I think Florida would have been a horrible PR choice because it was currently not part of the United States.
1: That makes a lot of sense. It's interesting how we like these kind of foundational myths and we like them kind of sanitized and innocuous and something that doesn't challenge us. And to me, that seems, you know, the safest and the most sanitized and the easiest, you know, Plymouth Rock and Pilgrims. And. You know, maybe I think it was probably because of the costumes. They like those hats and the big buckles, shoes and things like that. So that people yeah. could always, always make costumes for Thanksgiving out of construction paper.
0: <laughs> that's that's it's a construction paper holiday is exactly how I think of it. Oddly enough, Rick, uh, President Lincoln was not successful in getting oh. it made into a national holiday. JFK did it. But by oh. that time, we had, we had had almost 100 years of... People, you know, because Lincoln's the one who put this out there in the ether while Thanksgiving is in November. I mean, I believe the French Thanksgiving was in June and the Spanish Thanksgiving was in um, September. September, yeah. So, I mean, if we had the French thing, I'm just thinking about this French Thanksgiving in Florida in June, it would be seafood buffet. I mean, it'd be like an oyster bar beach party. It actually sounds great. Yeah, that doesn't really suck. (laughs) I mean, I think this is something we should start doing every June.
1: It would probably rain though, about four o'clock, the afternoon thunderstorm would roll in. So you'd have to duck inside, but then it would be over and then you could go out again. So maybe it's like you start and you do it at lunchtime. You go inside and have a nap, let the thunderstorm roll through. And then afterwards you go out and have fireworks.
0: Right. Or, 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 um, show a movie on the lawn.
1: Yeah, you could do that that too, except for. Could be mosquitoes and stuff like that, but that could work too. Or you could have a big bonfire on the beach.
0: Ooh, is that still legal by you? We well, you uh, all have bonfires I don't do you? know.
1: No, I don't. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> we got we have Lake Hourglass Beach here, and it's uh, I call it Kilby Beach, it's legal <laughs> on Kilby Beach.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know of anywhere around here where bonfires are legal on the beach, but now I want one.
1: Yeah, it could be maybe just for Thanksgiving.
0: Yeah. Well, if you really want to celebrate Thanksgiving next week, of course, what you want to do is you want to go up to St. Augustine. I mean, that's yes. what I would want to do, yes, even though uh, Fort Caroline is interesting, there's going to be a little bit more to do. Maybe we'll sell, maybe we'll do a Fort Caroline podcast around the Fort Caroline Thanksgiving next year. but
1: um that will give me time to actually visit
0: <laughs> it's it's not a lot to see,
1: oh, really? um, but
0: it's it's fascinating. No, it's an ecological and historic preserve is how the um national park service markets it
1: don't they have that owl totem that that was from um hontoon island i kind of grew up with it it was in the florida museum of natural history in gainesville when i was a kid or at least a reproduction of it but i think the original is at fort caroline and i would i would go up there just to see that because to me it's one of the two that and the um, marco island cat are the two coolest archaeological items from florida history
0: I am not familiar with the owl. Can you tell me a little bit about it?
1: In the 1950s, so Hantoon Island is uh, in the on the Saint John's River off of Deland. In the 1950s, they were dredging it, and they found something in the mud that had been preserved because of the anaerobic conditions on the bottom of the river, and it looked like you know a post or something. But when they looked closer, it was this giant owl totem. And they believe that it, effigy, I think, is a better word than totem. And okay. they also found a small one of an otter and then a small one of something else. But they believe that these kind of—they're uh, not sure, but they think they may be signified clans or something. They would have been placed right there on the river. So as you're going up or down the river, you see that this is the clan of the owl or the clan of the otter or something like that. There's a whole lot written about it, and I remember. One of the things we did when I was a kid was go to the Florida Museum of Natural History, and it was right by the door. But it could have been a reproduction, I'm not sure. But it still exists. It's very important. And I'd love to see it again because it's been decades.
0: That's fascinating. You know, every time I hear about, about an artifact like that, I think, well, shouldn't it be back with the descendants of the, the people? But that's a whole other can of worms.
1: Yeah, um, that's a good – That's an interesting question, actually.
0: Well, it's, it's like the Indiana Jones thing, right? Like where he says that belongs in a museum. And it's like, no, it belongs with the people, the British. <laughs> but it's, it's a, it, it's a whole other podcast. Fort Caroline is, um, Fort Caroline is, is not, um, it's not like St. Augustine. Okay. It's not like the Spanish quarter where you can go get fudge and all that. But I mean, it is a nice piece of open space and they've done their best to try and interpret what the fort might've looked like. They're, they're pretty clear. Um, if you ask, uh, that this is not, you know, those are not the actual fences from the fort, which it's weird because it's the only fort I know of in Florida that is, um, well, it'd be probably cause it's a reconstruction. It's not like tabby or coquina. It's basically wood. And we don't have a lot of those remaining. You probably want to reproduce. Yeah.
1: The, there's um, a reproduction of Fort Christmas here in Orange County. This
0: kind to get out there.
1: It's the second seminal cards this year. It's a second Seminole War era fort. Um, you know, it's it's not a lot to see. It's a bunch, you know, looks like a log cabin kind of. Um, well, it's like a log cabin in the middle with a fence, you know, made out of logs on the outside. But it is quite interesting actually. And I don't know if if there's other reproductions. Actually, I think there's one in Ocala of Fort King. Um, uh, but you know, there was this whole line of forts throughout Florida in this in the Seminole Wars.
0: Yeah, that's that's um you know, fort this and fort that, and it was really the only thing we ever had to worry about in Florida.
1: I think um, we're we're off topic. we were
0: trying. We are off topic. <laughs> it was it was the only thing we worried about because we were trying to do a hostile takeover, which is not <laughs> what Thanksgiving is about. Um, no. So, putting a pin in Jacksonville until the first Florida Thanksgiving in the summer, St. Augustine. You um, you can go there and see, of course, this giant giant cross next to the Catholic church where. Um, again, I don't think they know that's where the Spanish landed, but that is where they are saying it happened. So,
1: so supposedly, so the one thing I think that was missed in your wonderful telling of the French story is that Menendez knew that they were there and they actually had a naval battle out somewhere off of Jacksonville that, you know, didn't result in anything. So Menendez came South and that, and went to St. Augustine and landed, they say in the uh, village of Saloy, who was a Tumuquan chief, and that's where they established the first colony. And we know that the village of Saloy is where the Fountain of Youth attraction is. And the El Nombre de How do you say that? El Nombre, El de, Nombre de Dios. Dios. Oh,
0: it see, Dios. you're so good. It's Spanish mission.
1: It, that is just south of the Fountain of Youth. So there is actually a marker there that you know they have created for the first mass, mass in North America.
0: It's interesting. I mean, it's, it's there. I don't know when people travel to St. Augustine, I never know what they're looking for. You know, I, I don't know why people go to St. Augustine. I know that there's history there and people want to see Fort Montanzas. Um, They go to the fountain, the alleged fountain of youth. Well, I mean, there's a fountain of youth in every county, pretty much. right?
1: Any <laughs> he place for the spring.
0: There you go, but I mean, there's a lot to do in Saint Augustine. I know people love to walk that Spanish Quarter. By and large, I don't like to spend time in the Spanish Quarter.
1: I see. Yeah, I generally stay away from that because it's the busiest place. Then there's tourists everywhere, and it could be anywhere in Florida. You know, it's a big tourist corridor, and you know, I go there for the history. I love this off-beaten path streets with you know art galleries and you know cobblestone streets and the cool architecture that's what i'm there for i i avoid that stuff like the plague
0: i i was there a couple of times now there's an area of saint augustine called lincolnville and i am fascinated by it because it's one of these places that is um, very infrequently visited i think by most people it's uh on the other side of what is that king street that um is kind of the edge of the tourist area and uh, mm-hmm. it, it's the historically Black area of St. Augustine. And it started when uh, people had to free their slaves. The slave owners told all the, all the local slaves to meet um, at a certain place. And they basically said, okay, well, here's where you live now. I mean, I'm not clear on exactly how it happened. But what, what the result of that was is um, the Black community there lived in this area. They initially called it Africa. And then, of course, after uh, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, they changed it to Lincolnville. And all throughout uh, Jim Crow, Florida, all throughout all that segregation, uh, there was this thriving Black community. And, um, you know, I'm I'm certainly a fan of integration. I don't mean to sound like I am, like this wasn't good, Um, but the community was strong enough that they had their own doctors, their own dentists, their own businesses, and it uh ended up it's just a really interesting place because they have these beautiful old victorian's um and i always encourage people to go there it's part of the african american heritage trail there's the lincoln view museum which is excellent um and they have some wonderful programming and uh you can walk around and you can see it getting gentrified as it's happening um because what's what's happened obviously is as we as we've integrated which is a good thing uh black people can live anywhere they don't have to live in in certain areas and so as the moms the dads and the grandparents are dying the younger kids maybe don't want to move back so they they sell the house and what you're seeing is essentially an influx of wealthy people coming in buying these two story victorian homes and they're they're certainly you know renovating them and, and seems to be trying to keep true to the character but you're losing something in that community that once it's gone, you'll just have to read about it. You won't be able to see it. Uh,
1: Yeah. I see that at different places throughout Florida, you know, that, that as we continue to grow and continue to develop stuff, you know, that's prime real estate. That's right near the heart of the city. And we just keep getting pushing and pushing, getting closer and taking some of that over. I see it here in central Florida. You know, we have the historic black community of Eatonville, you know, so Maitland is pushing and pushing to the edges of Eatonville. And uh, in Winter Park, there's a historic black community called Hannibal Square. And the same thing is happening there in West Winter Park that, you know, a lot of the families who have lived there going back to the 19th century- can make a lot of ma- money selling their property and then having their little house torn down and replaced with a stupid little McMansion. And so you see these historic Black communities all over the state starting to slowly disappear a piece at a time. Uh, and it is sad. I've been to that museum there, and I highly recommend it. They do a great job of interpreting the history there. And there is a wonderful... um I, wonderful is not the right word, but a fascinating civil rights story in Jacksonville. Martin Luther King went there and was actually thrown in jail uh, in St. Augustine. And you know, there's uh, famous incidents at the, I think it was the Monson Motor Lodge or Monson Motor Inn, where uh, African Americans were attempting to swim in the swimming pool, and the hotel manager came out and threw muriatic acid in the pool in the pool while they were in there, and it made headlines and really helped um the civil rights movement because the publicity got
0: yeah and that's that um that is now i believe a hilton that hotel with the pool yes and they have uh they do they do acknowledge that that history there because that was a that was a horrible horrible defining moment um just how how hateful people could be um and of course as you mentioned martin Luther king getting arrested there i actually had the chance to do a walking tour with a woman who was a teenager uh when martin luther king was there and she protested wow uh, basically and she talks about uh you know being down on the ground in the street and she was just it was just really an incredibly powerful tour but by the end of it you can tell this woman was just emotionally done and uh it takes a lot i mean it's a lot of bad stuff to remember um but it, it definitely gives you a different perspective on a historic city. And she was walking around with us and she so she she stopped us at a water fountain. And she said, you see the other side of this? And they have those beautiful stone fountains in St. Augustine. She goes, you see this other side where there's a cement patch? And she said, that's where the colored water fountain was. That's what I had to drink out of.
1: Wow.
0: And then so I- then, then you start to look for these other signs. So you go home and you say, well, where where in my city is what do they call it se- se- hidden segregation in plain sight where yeah. you can see these nods throughout Florida and the South where, um, we have a uh, Coney Island hot dogs is in St. Pete. And the owners would always say that when they bought it, look at this window over here. This is where, this is a holdover from segregation. This is where black people had to go if they couldn't come in the store. Wow. I mean, it, yeah. So, I mean, it was a different way to see St. Augustine with her. Um, yeah, i realize not everybody wants to go on vacation and maybe feel really, really bummed out but um it was an excellent tour it didn't really bum me out i just you know it gives you a new perspective
1: yeah i think that's one of the thing i i like about saint augustine is like an onion and there's so many different layers different parts and aspects of history you know going back to 1565 but you know, I love the nineteenth century history, and I think the positive aspect of that the civil rights stuff is that it made a huge difference you know in the uh, the legislation that was eventually signed by l b j you know because of what happened in the publicity got it at St Augustine, there was also an incident where they tried to walk into the water at the beach, and people came and tried to beat up some of the African Americans and it was documented you know there's lots of photographs of it in the state archives, you know all that stuff helped move the bar. Because I, I think because people knew the Saint Augustine and it was ha- it was publicized, you know, there's a famous incident in Jacksonville, um, Axe Handle Saturday or something. Um, yes. that Didn't didn't get nearly the publicity that the stuff in Saint Augustine had to do, and a lot of that goes back to the celebration of the quadricentennial, which is the 400th anniversary of the landing of Menendez, to tie everything up, and they weren't talking about African-Americans enough. So you know there was all this federal money that was gonna come down and be used as part of the celebration and the African-American community said, you need to tell our story too. And that's how that all started coming about.
0: No one wants to acknowledge that the people who came to North America um, seeking whatever they were seeking, maybe we're not always great people, right? And And it's important that you tell that story that, Black people have a history going back to the 1500s in what is now the United States. And you have to tell their side of the story, you know, and, and it's it's a very different story than anybody who looks white grew up with, right? It's, it's, yeah. um, it's not necessarily, you think about the Thanksgiving dinner with the Spanish or with the pilgrims. Um, they both had slaves. I mean, so that's a Thanksgiving the very other than the French, you know, the second Thanksgiving, the Spanish one and the the one in New England. Um, you know, they have this other history with. Um so I mean Saint Augustine is a good place for for layers like that, as you said, because you can do as much as or as little, I think, of that as you want to.
1: And I I do think they do a great job of um, telling the story of Black History in St Augustine. Another place is Fort Mose, and they have a wonderful interpretive center. And actually, I think they have uh, a series of concerts coming up next year that uh, outdoor concerts. That the lineup looks outstanding, and. The museum is really good, and unfortunately, you can't really see the fort because it's an island that um, is kind of out in a marsh. But there is a boardwalk you can go out, and it's very beautiful and tranquil. And it's kind of to the north of, of town, just off of US one. And another wonderful site, and they have reenactors there who do a terrific job of telling the story there. And you know, I don't know that many people know that at one point, if you were willing to convert to Catholicism, the Spanish, you could be an escaped slave and and live as a free man in St. Augustine. And Fort Mose was kind of a a beacon of that freedom. And, you know, the people who populated that fort were uh, escaped slaves who became free persons when they came to St. Augustine.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'm hitting the slavery thing pretty hard, but I think it's important to note that um, the Spanish and the Pilgrims had very different ideas about slavery because the Spanish, all well, slavery is wrong. Let me let me just say that. But the Spanish believed in something called manumission, which means that basically you might be born a slave, but you don't have to stay a slave. Uh, which is not something that New England had. Um, so when Spain ultimately went back to the United States, or went to the United States, and that had to just be harrowing. For any any free people of color living in in Spanish Florida, because that was that that immediately removed their personhood.
1: Yeah, so so just to re- for people who don't know, Spain controlled Florida for a hundred, hundreds of years, and then it went to the British for a couple of decades, then went back to the Spanish for a I can't remember how long a few until. Was it 1821 when it became a United States colony? And I think a lot of those people at both ends of both Spanish periods, uh, a lot of the the indigenous people who were part of the Spanish community and the uh, black people who were part of the Spanish community ended up fleeing to Cuba when the British came up and then became a United States territory.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, um, Florida is very conflicted. If you look at us through, you know, our history, where we were Spanish um then we were british briefly british split us into two colonies um then we were spanish again and then the spain basically just decided that the united states was just too much nonsense um know, we were we were not doing great things let's put it that way um but you know saint augustine i don't think there's a whole lot in saint augustine that talks about the period of time where was under British control, unless I'm missing something, Rick. Is there anything like that there?
1: I actually, when I was working on my book, uh, you know, I wanted to talk about the British period because the Spanish never really encouraged settlement. You know, they, they saw Florida as important for keeping their fleets safe as they, you know, jumped in the Gulf Stream and went back to Europe. And so they saw the strategic purpose and they also had a series of missions, you know, um, going from Florida up into the Carolinas. And, you know, that was kind of to control the indigenous population and to protect their fleets. But the British really saw an opportunity for people to immigrate from England and to colonize Florida. And so that's kind of where I wanted to start my story. So I went looking for remnants of the British period and there are a few buildings that still exist Uh, I think Government House started as a Spanish building and then it was kind of remodeled during the British period. And there's a building that was a bakery that is kind of by the National Cemetery. If you go south on the waterfront, there's a a very interesting national cemetery that a lot of people don't know about there and there's a small building with a marker on it that was a bakery that go dates back to the british period which was 1760 something to 1780 something but that's that's about all you can find as far as i know
0: it's uh yeah st augustine doesn't identify as a uh british settlement at all um i don't i don't i don't think there's a whole lot there i'm amazed you found that um but so what what is uh what is your take I have to ask since you wrote the book literally about Florida springs what is your take on the fountain of youth attraction in st augustine do you go do you drink the water
1: so okay this is a kind of long story if you can handle it uh I'm here. years ago before i was married I was dating someone who moved here and I was trying to make her happy. So we would take impromptu road trips. I live in Orlando. So we did an impromptu road trip, got in the car Friday night, went up to St. Augustine and stayed. And this Howard Johnson, right kind of between the you know the El Nombre de Dios and the Fountain of Youth. And there's a big live oak in it called the Sentinel, Sentinel, Senator because it's old and it's crooked is what they always say. But we got there at night. And the Fountain of Youth attraction was closed. And so this girl I was dating wanted to break in and explore the Fountain Oh, my God. I do not trespass. (laughs) So I put my foot down. But I had this itch to go there. And I, but I had been indoctrinated by growing up in Florida that you don't go to these tacky tourist attractions. My dad instilled that in me that those places just wanted to take your money. So... About a decade later, I'm in St. Augustine staying in that same hotel with my family for Thanksgiving. We had decided to have a a family Thanksgiving there, and it was wonderful. I remember there was a beautiful sunrise with that big cross behind it. It was one of the most beautiful photographs I've ever taken in my life. But I decided I would go to the Fountain of Youth. And when I got there, I fell in love with the place because, you know, by that point, they had – really stopped telling the lie that it is the fountain of youth that was sought by Ponce de Leon. And they were, they were really trying to ground themselves in real history. And that, Uh, archaeologist Kathy Deegan was doing digs every summer. So they were coming up with new archaeological finds on the grounds of the Fountain of Youth. And it's just a beautiful, peaceful place. You know, it's got beautiful trees and there's peacocks running around and there's kitsch, you know, and I I love kitsch. There's these crazy statues of Ponce de Leon and indigenous people there. So that's when I got, that's kind of when I fell in love with Florida again. And because I thought, Well, I've I've overlooked places like this my whole life. There's something to them. What if I started exploring Florida as a tourist again, even though I'm a jaded Floridian who's lived here all my life? And that's when I started blogging and started writing. So, you know, this quest I'm on to kind of discover the, the unexpected lost places of Florida all began at the Fountain of Youth Attraction. So it will always have a special place in my heart.
0: I embrace those kitschy Roadside attractions. I I can't get enough of them. Um, but uh, I think the difference is you were born in Florida and I didn't move here until I was seven. So um, we kind of grew up. When anybody would come down and visit us, uh, we would go to Weeki Silver Springs, Homosassa Springs. Um, a, my mom even took me into a place once that just had a bunch of taxidermied animals somewhere up in either Hernando uh, or Citrus County. Uh, so I, I, I'm all in for that. It's a fun place. I don't know that I want to pay. What is it like 17 or 20 bucks to get in? Yeah. I don't know that I want to pay every time I go, but I'm going to see the same thing. I, I can be fairly judgmental of things. Like there's an alligator farm in St. Augustine and I've never been just on principle. And then somebody said, well, they're actually a zoological preserve and they're doing great things. I'm like, oh, well, okay, maybe I'll go back, try it out. But it's uh, it's easy to overlook these things when you live here. So.
1: Yeah, I've never been to the alligator farm there, but I'd love to.
0: You should check it out.
1: Yeah, it was that That's my place.
0: Annex Road, about that way. Uh,
1: yeah. So, what? Some of the my favorite places to go when I visit are. I love doing the tour of Flagler College because of the architecture, you know, that was built there by Henry Flagler is spectacular. And you, you can walk around for free or you can get to some of the inside stuff if you, I think it's probably about 20 bucks to go inside. And it's totally worth it just to see the cafeteria that's, you know, full of Tiffany stained glass and this amazing space where these Gilded Age diners, um, Love to go. And then the other place I like to go is the Leitner, which is in the old Hotel Alcazar right across the street, which is full. If you're into Victorian antiques, it's just chock full of that stuff. But, you know, I'm I geek out on the hydrotherapy equipment that's there because that's kind of what I like.
0: (laughs) So you might want to explain to people why there's hydrotherapy equipment in the Lightner, which is also the city hall for St. Augustine, is it not?
1: Yes. It's in the same building. And there's, there's a cool little art gallery there too, that last time when we were there, we bought a ton of paintings. The guy had just bought somebody, somebody was moving out West and selling all their inventory. So we had these beautiful oil paintings for very cheap. Uh, so Flagler built that kind of originally to be just kind of, um, uh, recreational facilities for the Hotel Ponce de Leon across the street, but eventually it became a hotel as well because there was the need for it. And, you know, part of the, the draw of that day was um, hydrotherapy. They called it the water cure that people love to do. So they had, you know, a steam bath, a a plunge pool, a, a sits bath, a needle shower, all this incredible stuff. And they had at one point what was the largest indoor swimming pool in the United States. And that that shell of that swimming pool is still there. But most of the hydrotherapy stuff is there. I'm interested, you know, my latest book is called Florida's Healing Waters. So all the ways that our healing waters in the state have been used. And to me, that's the best vestige of any of the hydrotherapy equipment at any of the hotels during that era. And it just shows the popularity of using water for healing at that time in, in American history. And it, you know, eventually the the people who used that kind of um, healing modality were people who were, you know, from the North intended to be very wealthy. And so when they came South to Florida, you had to have facilities like that and Flagler put them in there and they still exist today. And you can, you can see that. And it's very, very little has
0: changed. You can't use them, right? They're not no. functional. No. Yeah. Can't imagine that OSHA would would sign off on that. They can't be uh, up to the latest specs. So, well, that's uh, I did not know that about the Leitner Museum. So now I know something new. So there you go. And I think we have certainly talked out our Thanksgiving episode. Uh, Rick, welcome to the podcast. This is great. Um, we'll have links to pretty much everything we mentioned as far as places to go in the uh, show notes. So check that out there with that i think we're about done rick do you have anything to add
1: you know i was thinking about this as you talked about the the kind of stew that that florida has been that maybe thanksgiving the proper way to do it is to have something from all the different people who you know were important in florida's history so you have something representing the indigenous cultures that lived here something from the french something from the spanish and something from the english that would be pretty cool
0: i'll tell you what i'll work on it this week and <laughs> okay. uh, i'll get back to you so Thanks for joining us this week on the Florida Spectacular. We've been your host, Kathy Celestri. That's me and Rick Kilby. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. <laughs> or something. Uh, have, a, have a great uh, week off or day off. Enjoy your pumpkin pie. And remember, if you really want to celebrate Thanksgiving like the Floridian, go get yourself some shrimp. It's historical. We'll see you next time on the Florida Spectacular.